Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. Hello, hello. Welcome back. I am so excited to be sharing this interview with Dr. Ali Zentner on the podcast today. Ali is a pioneer in the field of obesity medicine. She's a mentor of mine. She is a powerful voice and advocate to end fat shaming. And she's just an all-around amazing person. Uh, She is the medical director and founder of Revolution Medical Clinic in Vancouver. Her background is in internal medicine. She trained at McMaster University for medical school and then the University of Calgary for residency. And over the course of her career, she has founded a number of bariatric programs in Alberta, on Vancouver Island, and within the Fraser Health region, region in BC. Ali is also the author of the book, The Weight Loss Prescription, A Doctor's Guide to Permanent Weight Reduction and Better Health for Life. She is an avid runner. She's a triathlete. You will find her walking to work every single day. Um, and she's just she's just awesome. So this is going to be really fun. I've decided to keep this podcast in long format because Ali has so much to share, so much wisdom and gold. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, here we go. Ali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so amazing. Absolutely. Uh, So, so good. I'm so excited to talk to you. I know I've told you this. I consider you a mentor and inspiration, particularly in how you like just love your patients. I think that's amazing. You're also one of the pioneers in the field of obesity medicine, a foremother, shall we say, right? Um, And so I know you have tons of insight and wisdom to share. (laughs) Would you say that you're a foremother? Um, I, I, I am uncomfortable with being called a mother due to my <laughs> okay. you know, stance on having <laughs> children. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, I realize saying love my patients in these day and ages, but you know, there's the, we're hysterical. Our intro is already fraught with patients, <laughs> but I, um, um, I, I appreciate, I'm humbled by the over delivery that we have already started. <laughs> you knew I was going to talk about a while, shall we yes. say. Yes. Let's do that. Yes. Yes, you have been. So today we're going to be speaking about weight bias and fat shaming specifically. But before we get into that, can you just give us a little introduction about you and tell us like how you have arrived at this point in your career? Um, so, I mean, without kind of delving into sort of long, uh, windedness, which, uh, as a internist, we suffer that, uh, chronically, but, um, uh, you know, um, never really wanted to be a doctor, uh, had 80 billion other things I wanted to do. My father, God love him, forced me into medicine with the, um, the adage of, I had a good brain and a good heart. And I think that has always been sort of the theme that I think of throughout my entire career. Um, You know, small town girl, North End Winnipeg, went away to medical school, uh, residency uh, in Calgary. And then I started off actually in cardiology and decided I didn't want to do that. And I left and just did just, did her internal medicine and kind of fell into obesity medicine. I was working uh, doing a locum in a small town in Southern Alberta and just started talking to people who, you know, newly, I was diagnosing people with diabetes and who had adiposity and thought, 
there is a connection here. And, um, you know, it's interesting at the time I had significant adiposity as well. So I think there was this automatic kind of unthreatened approach that I could take that I was, you know, I, I wasn't going to impose some sort of external belief system that there was this shared, you know, empathy, if you will, that sort of threaded through this and, um, you know, the rest, quite frankly, as they say, is history. I thought this, this feels right. Uh, that was 20, 21 years ago and have um, everywhere I've moved to since it has been kind of a focus on treating people with adiposity and, and those who have weight complications and such. Um, and um, now I have a clinic in Vancouver for the last, uh, been here for the last 13, 14, 15 years, something like that. I don't even know. COVID takes away time. So <laughs> there. Um, and uh, I run um, one of the largest multidisciplinary um, obesity clinics in the country that is run exclusively through the socialized healthcare system. And uh, I'm going to our little braggy moment is we are one of the few clinics in Canada to be recognized as a center of excellence by the European Society for the Study of Obesity. So we, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and and have a multidisciplinary team. And I basically, you and I talked about this before even the recording, um, you know, 22 years in practice. And yes, uh, this last 18 months have been harder than usual, but I think um, I'm still madly in love with the work that I do. So that's, I think is, I mean, right now my work's a bit of a bad boyfriend, if you will, (laughs) Uh, only because of the sort of external sort of pandemic issues. But, um, uh, but I will say um, definitely feel very privileged uh, to be able to have a front row seat to the human condition and to try humbly and respectfully to, um, you know, sort of champion patients treatments for them. Yeah. So, so good. I think that's something that we both share is just, we really love what we do and we feel so blessed to be able to do this and work with this patient population. So take me back, like you've been working in obesity medicine since 2000, 2001, right? What, what was it like then? Cause I've been doing this since 2012, 13 and the landscape has changed drastically. So tell me what it was like when you first started. Um, I think that there was an interesting juxtaposition between the two things. So I almost see three different things that happened at that time. So there was the landscape of obesity medicine, number one. Then there was sort of the landscape of medicine before some of the reckoning that is happening. And then there was, to be very frank, what was happening in my own personal life. And those, I'd love to tell you that I can separate those three things, but I think they were so intertwined. Um, And they so almost kind of reflected each one. So back in 2000, there was maybe like five (laughs) people across Canada who were even kind of would consider themselves, quote, obesity specialists, if you Mm -hmm. will. I don't even think that we were sort of discussing it within that context. Um, uh, There there was, um, you know, there were, 
I think at the time, Obesity Canada was called um, Canada Obesity Network. It was in its infancy. Um, there wasn't this kind of established, even scientifically, leptin, I think, had just been, quote, mm-hmm. discovered. So from a scientific perspective, we still believed very strongly it was an eat less, move more. We were holding fast to the first law of thermodynamics and mm-hmm. Chemistry was never even a thought. Biochemistry and endocrinopathies weren't spoken about. Um, and, and all of the science behind it was, you know, I liken it to back in the sort of 50s and 60s when depression was called LMF or low moral fiber. And there was just this understanding in medicine that weight was because you ate too much and you didn't exercise and therefore you were, um, you know, and you were fat and you were stupid and you were lazy and you were unworthy, period. Mm -hmm. And there was something morally wrong with you. That That was the sort of science. There was two medications ish available. We were from a scientific perspective and treatment perspective, we were still reeling around the whole FenFen experience. That was the backlash had sort of just come to, to play and, you know, treatments killed people. So that was what we had thought of. And bariatric surgery was basically a death surgery. So the idea was, I mean, if I may to say it to extremes, it was um, the science hadn't caught up and the culture certainly was back in some sort of archaic um, experience of the first order. And the idea of treatment was that the treatments were worse than the disease because, you know, um, and so that was the kind of science around it. Now, there were a couple agents available. So, you know, Orlistat or Xenical was there, but it was a fat blocker and it just made you like, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> you, you be you, you do okay, you. Sorry. I, I, I blame my mother who has, a, I'm, I'm from North End, Winnipeg. I say that proudly, but it does come with certain four letter words, but it made you shit yourself constantly. Yeah. Actually, that's not a swear. Cause that's a medical term. Um, <laughs> and so even that, like you could, you could choose that or you could just choose like extreme kind of dieting. Um, Meridia or Sibutramine was on the market and it was, it, it posed a glimmer of hope, but then they tried it in very high risk patient populations. And it had a very small signaling of increased cardiovascular risk. And so it got pulled. And so even within the treatments, anything that even had a tiny glitch was pulled. I remember mm-hmm. there was a drug, for example, called Romanabant, which was a cannabinoid receptor agonist. And, you know, they had two, a large scale trial was like five or 6,000 people. And in the, in the treatment group, one person with severe depression had committed suicide. And so they pulled the drug. Um, Now make no mistake. I am a huge fan uh, and a huge advocate for safety in treatment and, Mm -hmm. and that, but there was like, to summarize, there was this lack of science that we have now, there was a trauma, if you will, of the history of these sort of 
harmful treatments in the past and that legacy that it left. And those two things together with this bias of really just come on, this is benign. Just get patients to eat like these lazy people just need to like take you know, responsibility for their health care um, and, and all of that together, any drug had to be like safer than oxygen and water in order to get approved. And so there was no one championing treatments, to be very frank, specifically for obesity. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just felt like I was sitting on a desert island and I knew there wasn't a ship coming uh, under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the scientific landscape and the cultural bias landscape. And Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, that was a hotbed for perpetuating this massive amount. Like it was, it was not just um, okay or acceptable to fat shame patients, but it was understood that that's just what you did. And I think at the time as well, like 20 plus years ago, culturally, we were at a weird reckoning in, in our health. We had these sort of puritanical values of, you know, you need to take control of your health. And it was sort of the birth of, of around the time where the internet was starting to be this quote tool where people could go to medical school on Google and (laughs) they were encouraged to, you know, be, and rightfully so encouraged to be their own advocates and everything. But there was, it was this ripe sort of landscape for um, twistedness around what does it mean to be your own advocate as opposed to what does it mean to, you know, completely take care of your own health. And you can see kind of those cultural ebbs. And that was the science, the sort of science, obesity medicine that I walked into, if you will. And then on the kind of medical social experience, medicine was still very much a white man's industry. I was, I was a woman who was a specialist. Um, I mean, I remember my medical school, um, my graduating class in what was it? 1990. I think or 96. No, 90. I graduated 97 or 96. Wow. This is what happens, right? Um, 90. <laughs> getting old, getting uh, old. No, uh, no, not at all. It's, old is good. Old, old we just is good. Need a word for it because it sounds <laughs> negative. Um, but, um, but we were written up in the Hamilton Spectator because we were the first graduating medical school that had more quote, they even said it more girls than boys. It's mm. like, oh, I'm like in my late twenties and I'm a girl. This is very cool. Um, so, you know, we were 51% or no, 52 or 53 of us were women and, um, and the rest 47 were, were men. Um, and that was like this big deal. Mm-hmm. And then when I started my residency, the first question I was asked was, was I going to have children? Like it was okay to ask those right. questions. Right. And, you know, I realized back then that there was a lot of, you know, of sexism and misogyny that was perpetuating through not just, I mean, not just from patients, but I remember going to a seminar about what do you do if you're examining a patient? I was in cardiology at the time and the patient develops an erection and all the (sighs) girls had to go to this. And I was like, this is like, and that was just, 
that just seemed like it was like, right. yeah, okay. And it was weird because we didn't stop and pause for a moment and go, this is whacked. Like, what is like just a second here? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, the only thing I can remember speaking out was I had a surgeon in one of my medicine rotations say to me, you know, Dr. Zentner, where's your skirt? Because for certain rotations, when I did electives, we still had to wear skirts. If you oh my would. goodness. Yeah. Oh, oh my like, goodness. And this is not like 1960, like the, or 1902. And, yeah. and my comment was, why, sir, did you want to borrow it? And I basically got the principal. <laughs> of course. Like, yeah. you know, so, I mean, that was what was happening in medicine. It was, it was still, it hadn't yet had this, you know, reckoning and, and make no mistake, we're nowhere near we need to be today, but there was, and it's for the point of our discussion, there was a lot of racism and there was a lot of misogyny and there was a lot, I mean, transphobia was just, and, and, and even remember that back then I was also working, this was when just, we were coming off of the height of, you know, HIV and AIDS were, um, were the epidemic and the plague that we were dealing with back then and all of the homophobia that came with that. So there was a lot of um, real uh, ripe um, racist, um, homophobic, misogynistic, transphobic, um, anti-Indigenous, like name it. We were Mm -hmm. just... We were not good. We were white colonial jerks, to be very mm-hmm. frank. Yeah. And then, and then finally, um, I myself um, have had um, uh, have had challenges with adiposity my whole life. I was, my mother jokes that I was 10 pounds, 11 ounces, and I was 33 pounds in a year and off and running and um, gained a significant amount of residency. So I finished my residency at like 330 pounds and then was now out working in the community as a woman specialist with obesity in this climate. So Mm -hmm. those three things kind of together. Um, uh, and that, you know, was kind of, I think uh, I had, not only did I have a front row seat to what medicine was doing as a care provider, but I was in the back rooms constantly being, you know, pulled aside by colleagues going, you really need to get yourself healthy. Like, have you thought about this? And I was like, God, here we go again. You know, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. those those sorts of things for the sake of our discussion on, on weight bias were, were, that was where we were. Yeah. So, okay, you've given us a really good idea of the landscape and then your personal experience. So I'm really curious, we had no great medical treatment and we didn't understand the psychology or the, that component of obesity either. So what were you doing? Like, how were you treating patients if it wasn't just kind of touting that, Hey, you know what? You, you really should eat healthier, right? Like maybe, maybe eat some healthy food and, and not eat junk food. Cause that was kind of the, the mentality, yeah. right? So, right. so what were you offering? So, I mean, we, first of all, I think I was doing what was, I believe at the heart of every good therapeutic relationship period, no matter what specialty you were in, but I was just, it really taught me to listen to people mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. talk to them and to hear them And to know that I didn't always have to have the answers. Like, I think too often in medicine, we have this sort of black and white approach, almost this binary approach of, 
you know, you're either treated or you're not, you're healthy or you're not. And that goes back to this kind of moral sort of um, residual effect of you're therefore good or you're not. And you're, you know, this idea of your destination health. And we, we now are really changing and shifting that paradigm around this idea of health is where you are. And, and why does it have to be, a, you know, that's why I hate that term. You and I've talked about this, this journey thing. Like it implies that you're going to go on a trip and you're going to journey through, and then you're going to get there. And I also just don't subscribe to that when it comes to, you know, health. Cause I think that it's a process and it's, it's, you know, health is a verb. It's not a noun kind of thing. And it's, it's a constant kind of experience. And so it, A, I would say, you know, forced me to really develop clinical skills around language and how I talk to patients and how I frame things. I, I definitely discussed with them sort of ways that they could, you know, we, we did some discussions around behavior and I should say I did a lot of training in cognitive behavioral therapy and how to better frame my conversations around patients that were more patient centered, that were more respectful of where they were coming from. I, I think it, it forced me to very much take kind of myself and this yes, no out of the equation um, there were still treatments. I mean, I still, I prescribed cybutramine until it got pulled and there was a very small amount of bariatric surgery happening. And I still very much championed that until it got pulled. And it, it's interesting because I remember even, let's say five years into my practice around 2005, 2006, the biggest criticism I used to get was, Oh, Ali, you're like totally into the whole drug thing. Like you keep pushing the whole drug stuff. And I'm like, like, and that was such a negative thing. And I, it's, I laugh now because I remind everybody that I, I am a doctor. Like, like that is like, I did go to school so I could write prescriptions. And yes, I realized that there's this whole push in mainstream society again, you know, about what's natural and, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say it. death is natural. Like I'm a doctor and what we do in my field of in medicine is we use that which is not natural to fight death. And I, I stand by that. And so, um, and then some of the newer and then leptin came, then the science developed. And so it was probably the first five ish years, six years of my practice that, yeah, there was a lot, not a lot. I mean, there were not a lot of tool, not to, I hate the word tools, but not a lot of treatments like pharmacotherapeutic treatments, but, you know, we talked a lot around um, that whole nutritional piece. And, and I will say, when I look back, I can fully acknowledge that there's you know, a lot of people that I owe apologies to, um, that I didn't do right by them. And I'm not, I'm not like, I I think it's okay to own that because, Mm -hmm. you know, sure. I can say that the science wasn't there and that I didn't have the drugs and da, 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 da. And I was sort of just going along with the times, but, you know, I, I think that, that I look back and I, I can say that the, the practice, 
the, that I did maybe 2003, 2004. Um, there's a lot of people I didn't do right by. Um, absolutely. That I, I would love to, you know, have another conversation with them. What I mean by that is even, you know, there were a lot of patients with binge eating disorder, which is a whole other entity that I, I, you know, didn't, we didn't have treatments and I didn't sort of know exactly how to treat them and was basically telling, you know, in, you know, asking them to engage in, you know, white knuckle prayer-based therapy that, you know, pro- wasn't appropriate for them. So mm-hmm. but isn't that what a doctor does? Like a doctor who reaches the end of their career with, without ever making a mistake, maybe, maybe they've seen five people in their entire mm-hmm. life. So, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, I can acknowledge those mistakes made. And then, you know, the newer agents came and the science came and bariatric surgery all of a sudden started to be, you know, looked at. And then even more so all, you know, that was, wow, we now had treatments. And it was like, I felt like I was at the dawn of something like when, when, you know, the class of agents, the GLP one analogs came about, um, uh, which for, I guess, the sake of your listeners were a group of hormones that are fullness hormones. We now sort of understood that, you know, weight regulation is super complicated and Mm -hmm. that obesity is a state where the brain inappropriately thinks it's starving and a starving brain physiologically stores fat and hunts for food. And that there's probably, there's 37 different hormones and there's, you know, there's probably 70, 80 faces to this disease. And, and then it all started to kind of ravel out. And, and I will say the most potent thing specifically about this was that, you know, we, we realized that, um, that there was a lot more to this than the, you know, than what we were doing before. And I, I often say that I think that felt like that must've been what it was like, for example, in hypertension medicine and blood pressure medicine, when, you know, back in the sixties, we told people to just not have salt and exercise and quit smoking. And then all of a sudden we had six classes of drugs to choose from. And, you know, depression back in the forties, we told people to cheer up and now we actually had treatment. And I kept saying, wow, this is what it was like for psychiatrists when they, you know, when Prozac came out or like for cardiologists, when Lipitor came out, like it just felt like there was a changing in uh, of the wind, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then Sorry, I'm talking so much. No, I love it. No, we want to hear you. um, And then like, um, and then the science came and then, you know, um, and yeah, there were still, and we still have miles to go and there were still vestiges of the old ways. And then, you know, then there was a reckoning of the culture of, no, it's not okay to, you know, call your female physician sweetie or deary or you know that that's not appropriate and um and I think over the last sort of five years more so in the last you know two to three years there's an even greater reckoning around um you know what is this colonial white man's institution what has it done and what is it really doing with with its position of privilege. And I think we're now having dialogues in medicine about what it means 
to have privilege and to be privileged and and what how does that translate to the patients that we serve yeah yeah so for our listeners ali is also a strong feminist and advocate for women would you say would you call yourself that yeah I, I, it's a challenge because i think feminist is now the f word and and mm. i Look, I, I, I believe in true feminism because, you know, we used to, we, I went through a period of time where we didn't call it, I wasn't a feminist, I was an egalitarian because that was, you know, yeah, I, I think, I, I would say, I think that everybody has a voice um, uh, beyond their Facebook page. Um, and uh, I think that, I would say I, I was raised that, um that um, it's so important that we um, champion equality for all. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you are someone who has more advantages than the next person, it is your obligation um, to, um, to sort of, um, shine the light on injustices and more importantly to navigate towards um, those who might be less privileged than you to change the dynamic of the environment you're in such that everyone gets an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So good. Okay. I have a ton of questions just to follow up from that. So I want to just touch on language because you mentioned, you know, uh, in the beginning, you learn to really listen to your patients and and be cautious with the language that you use. And we know that language in this field is critical. Um, and there are a lot of terms that are used that are very weighted. So I noticed a few times that you talked about um, people with adiposity and you referred to yourself that way as well. So tell us about that. So I, it's my latest, you know, I... Uh, I um, I think I I often try and and think about like I, I like to expose myself to um, what's happening on outside of medicine, particularly in the world of um, fat activism and in fat acceptance and in the body positivity movement and all of that because I think. You know, we, we know culture reflects medicine and medicine reflects culture. And I think those of us, particularly in this space, and, uh, you know, I, I think the thing that appeals the most to me right now about medicine is we talk about patient care and, and our, our job as doctors, but I love the idea of an advocate. Like, I, I think patient advocacy is probably sort of where I'm going to spend the next several decades of my career. Uh, mm-hmm. quite honestly. And so it was really important to me to learn, you know, what's going on in in those other spaces. And, mm-hmm. you know, the challenge I think we're facing in medicine is a lot of our language is off. Like, you know, Sasha, the emperor has no clothes. I mean, the world is actually round, but we're still sailing, expecting to fall off the end of it. Like we really are back in like pre- Columbus, talk about colonialism, right? Um, thinking, uh-oh. And obesity is one of those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, I think our challenge is how we 
even diagnose if you, and I, I'm using air quotes. Yeah. So we diagnosed this disease based on an equation developed in the 1800s by an astrologer who looked at the Scottish and Flemish army to sort of find the quote, perfect man, um, which is um, Adolf. I don't, I'll say his name wrong all the time, but it's Quidelay or yes, I, I didn't do very well in French, but um, and anyways, he looked at the, he sort of created a bell curve of, you know, uh, weight over uh, height squared. And that's the BMI. And, and then we ran with it. And it's been adopted by the insurance companies because it was just easy. And then it was adopted by um, Ansel Keys, who is considered, quote, the father of um, cholesterol medication, but probably one of the biggest fat shamers you've ever met and in medicine. And now all of a sudden the king is dead, long live the king. And, you know, and that's how we diagnose people. And we talk about the fact that we probably shouldn't use this and that it doesn't da da da, and da but we still use it. So mm-hmm. like in the, so I don't subscribe to the belief that if you don't have anything better, use something shitty. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Like, right. I, I do think sometimes nothing is better than bad in a profession that professes to do no harm. So that's one problem that I have. Um, obesity comes from the Latin and the French, meaning to eat oneself fat. I didn't know that. Interesting. Right. Doesn't <laughs> that suck? So every time we say you have obesity, yeah, like we are literally fat shaming and make no mistake. I still use it and I hate myself for it. And it's funny. I gave a talk at the um, obesity Canada uh, conference on what we could do to change weight bias. And I'll be honest with you. I think the first thing we could do is change the freaking name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Cause I feel like anytime I say the word obesity to my patients, I'm like obesity, which is a medical condition. Like I always put this like disclaimer because I think that when they hear that word, it's, it's got shame in it already. Right. But cause it does cause yeah. from the Latin, it is shameful. Yeah. And, and also it's rife with inaccuracies. It doesn't have the best diagnostic criteria. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Depression used to be called LMF which is low moral fiber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they changed it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, I understand that there's certain, I mean, like, you know, we used to say a person was hysterical because hysteria was from the uterus. Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, we, we have changed substance misuse disorder where you no longer call patients addicts, you know? So why is it that we're still doing this? Yes, we're focusing on people first language, which I think is fabulous. Um, I hope that we've eliminated the word morbid. I mean, God, just, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. just freaking yeah. awful. Yeah. But, but I think we've gone a little bit, but I don't think we go far enough. And, and sometimes that bothers me in medicine. We take two steps and we sit down and we think, oh, we're good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, the door's over there, walk all the way. Like, so, so I will say adiposity is Latin for fat tissue, which mm-hmm. let's be frank, size does not predict health. So we have patients who have adiposity, which means that they have fat tissue. And then there are patients who have 
metabolic complications or as a result of their adiposity, or they have an inflammatory adiposity. And those are patients who have what's called adisopathy, which is a hormonally charged sort of, quote, um, uh, um, you know, maybe metabolically complicated um, state of fat tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, and I have to say, I prefer, and I, I, I haven't done the studies, I haven't looked at it, but, um, but I think there has to be a medical reckoning around this. And yes, we need a medical term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say, if you asked me like t- 10 years ago, I would have said to you, yeah, you know, I don't like the word obesity. My patients don't like the word obesity. I used to even say, pick another word and I'll use it. Um, yeah. I'll happily, you know, I, the joke I would always say is, Hey, I'll, I'll use the word sparkle. You have sparkle, but you know, cause <laughs> I thought it just, we just need a different sounding yeah. words, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we literally just need to make up a new term altogether. Right. Cause I think the other word, the other terminology that is often recommended, even in the guidelines, I believe is to say elevated weight. And I always kind of, I feel or, or weight. I think they say like, you can talk about elevated weight, you can talk about weight, but then again, it just goes back to the scale, which we all know is also a terrible metric and does not tell us anything about a person's health either. So yeah, it's like, we have to come up with an entirely different term. Right. And so it it does point to this idea that language, you know, it it was the old, I, I don't know, but you know, watch your words because they become or watch your thoughts because they become your intentions, watch your intentions become because they become your words, watch your words because they become your actions. And, you know, we, I would say our words reflect our intentions and our intentions are reflecting our thoughts and our Mm -hmm. words are becoming our actions. And, and yet I sit in rooms over and over and over again. And it, we're hypocrites. I mean, even, you know, I I understand that the science isn't there yet, but I guess my question is, is in the absence of science, I'd rather have a blank page than a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's just acknowledge we don't know as opposed to we don't know, but we're going to use this instead, you know, and I'll give you an example. Like, when, right, when COVID came out and the whole idea of, you know, of hydroxychloroquine and everything, like we didn't say, let's use it in the meantime and then we'll study it. You know, we said, no, just, just slow your roll here. Like just a second, let's, let's, let's look at this and let's make sure it doesn't cause harm. And then mm-hmm. we can make recommendations. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't think we realize because we think it's just a name and it's just words and it's, it's benign. Like, it's not like you're injecting it into you or you're not swallowing it or no, but it's, but harm is like, harm is not just chemical. Like you can do a lot more harm in how you talk to someone. Yeah. Just like you can do, like, we know that words heal. And yeah. words are as much weapons as they are, um, you know, healing and therapeutic. And, um, and so th- that, that to me, that's my one real 
um, I guess that's the hill I'm okay to die on. If yeah. Okay. So I have one more question about language before we pivot. So I, um, I'm curious about what you think of the terms weight loss. And before you jump in, I'm going to tell you a little story. So when we put my clinic up on the internet and we were, you know, trying to let people know about us, we didn't use any of those. We, I, I did. I was like, I'm not going to use the word weight loss. I don't want to be, you know, uh, perceived as the commercial weight loss industry. So we didn't use any of those terms. And we talked about obesity medicine. And I think I might have used the word weight management. And no one found us because, quite frankly, no one is googling weight management clinic or obesity medicine doctor. Like people are looking for weight loss, and so. I actually had to go back and, you know, with my marketing people, we had to go back and look at our SEO and all that. And we had to use the terms weight loss because that is what people are Googling. So what do you think about that? So change it back. Because now you have a name. Mm, hear what you're saying. So now that Mike, yeah, yeah. Because I'm established now that people are looking for me. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Interesting. I, will tell you, I mean, I, I, I know how you feel. But, yeah. You and I had this discussion, like on our website, it doesn't talk about that. And yeah. I, I totally understand because it's, it's the idea that sure. in culture, culturally speaking, this is what populations are known for. But I, I think that there is what exists in the culture in, in everyday society. And then there is what exists in medicine. And it, it's interesting Remember like, what was it, three, four years ago when the whole, maybe four years ago now with the Me Too movement and around medical communities, we're all having a reckoning around sexual harassment within medicine. And I remember sitting around a table with uh, a bunch of colleagues and, and no, you know, he didn't mean harm, but one of the guys at the table said, well, this is just what's happening in culture. Like, come on, Allie, like, you know, this is like, it's happening everywhere. And I, my comment to him was, aren't we supposed to be better? Like as an institution, you know, I think about medicine as this institution and I, there's a beautiful book by Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny. And it's sort of the 10 steps that you can, it's this tiny little book. Can I tell you, I've probably read it 30 times. Like, and it sits on my coffee table and I just, it's poetically beautiful, but it's almost like, it's like the world, if you want to make the world better and be a true advocate and activist, it's literally like, it's like you're a manifesto. Um, and I think it's like one of these manifestos for humanity. And he talks about defending institutions because institutions are indeed sort of the pillars of, 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 the do better society, if you will. And when institutions fail us, whether it's, you know, journalism or law or medicine or education, these sort of institute or, or, um, you know, um, or government, the, you know, then that's when society breaks down. And, I believe that medicine is an institution that should absolutely do better. And so that, yes, you're right that it's hard, you know, you're, you're trying to have a business and you're trying to have patients and you're trying to practice and build that sense of therapeutic community. And so you have to maybe 
sort of look at what people are attracted to in order to provide um, that, like you got to start somewhere. So maybe, you know, it's the she stoops to conquer kind of thing. Uh, dare I say it? But but I will say um, I do, you know, the purist in me feels that as an institution, we're supposed to be better because if medicine reflects culture and culture reflects medicine, you, you then now have an opportunity not just to change, you know, you're, and you, you're, you know, you know how I feel, but you're one of the good ones. Absolutely. And I'm not saying any of us are one of the bad ones. I, I don't believe people go into medicine for harm. I do believe that 99.9% of us are truly believe that we are doing right by the people we serve. And when we aren't doing right, I don't think it was our intent to, to be malicious. And if, if that is the case, then I'm sure that there's, you know, a podcast coming out about that person. (laughs) Um, There's a sociopathic wing that they can serve in. But, um, but I think that, you know, we do need to, we need to be up here and then let the world rise to us as opposed, you know, as opposed to, to be, like dare I'm going to say it's going to be controversial, but as opposed to pandering to, you know, what's getting Googled. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about that. I think that I love your optimism. Um, my opinion on that is that we're an institution made up of humans and humans are humans everywhere. Right. Like it would be so nice to think that medicine is like called higher and perhaps that is the calling, but quite frankly, like it's just, it's just full of human beings who are flawed just like everywhere else. I don't know. Agreed. But I think if we don't aspire, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the, um, you know, yeah, we're all miring in the muck, but some of us are looking at the stars Mm. and I I'm paraphrasing someone way smarter, (laughs) but I, I think if we don't, aim higher and we don't aspire to be better. I, I, I agree with you. I think we can acknowledge our humanity at all times and be humbled by our humanity. And that should guide us in our, in terms of how we safely navigate um, our, what we do and uh, who we may hurt and who we may heal. But I think we should always, you know, even from a philosophical perspective, aspire to be, you know, greater than, than what we are. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I started my career in ICU and yeah, we're all human and we're all flawed. And I remember always going in afterwards to pronounce a patient or something. And there was something in that room. And I'm not a religious person. You and I have had these discussions, but there was something in that room about being there when a person leaves this world that that's, that's not just a bunch of people going to work every day. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. All right. So tell me what is the end game? So if we're like, what are what's your view when we talk about weight? Uh, like losing weight as an outcome for people with adiposity or adiposity related disease. That's another term I've heard. Um, What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I, I don't use like, I, I try and undiet patients. So I try and get them away from numbers because we know like even how much weight a person loses and gains in their lifetimes is genetics. So, I mean, having a conversation with a patient about a quote goal weight is like having a conversation with them about a goal height. Sure. Yep. And the more they know that at minute one, and you don't just say it once, you probably, I mean, I often, I would argue that I have repeated conversations with people about that because they go out into the world and they're told if you just work hard enough, you can have whatever body you want. And if you mm-hmm. don't have the body you want, you're just not working hard enough. Yeah. And, you know, Giselle Bunchen may do yoga and eat vegan and do all that stuff, but we can acknowledge that there's some genetics going on there and other stuff perhaps that's having her do that. Just like genetics determined that your brain couldn't go to medical school and someone else's brain couldn't. You know, and so I I think that just, you know, on that front, Giselle's body couldn't go to Victoria's Secret and someone else's body can't. Yeah. So I I think not to pick on Giselle, like (laughs) I wanted to be her when I was younger. She was kind of the the one that I aspired to be like, girl on girl. (laughs) I'm not having a girl on girl hate crime here. That's not what (laughs) absolutely 100 percent, you know. Um, yeah. But I wanted to be Lauren Bacall, but that was like, <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Okay. Okay. Anyway. All right. So let, let's so, just talk so, for, okay, so go on. Finish. Question yeah. Is, yeah. We focus on health. And in fact, the first thing we talk about with patients is what are their, like, why are they coming to see me? Like why lose weight? What is that about? What are yeah. the measurements that yeah. we can sort of point towards and, and, you know, you know this, they often say, I want to feel better. Well, what does feel better mean? Like, and, and here's the challenge with this, this sort of whole process is that people with adiposity have been put in a box and, you know, disease means that the body physiologically doesn't do its intended function. And that may affect how you move through the world. And when we're talking about adiposity, we're talking about the the bodily function here is that energy regulation so that the body doesn't appropriately regulate energy such that it stores fat tissue inappropriately. And that may affect how you move through the world. Well, part of that could be that the, the fat tissue itself is affecting a person's quality of life, whether because, you know, metabolically they have you know high blood pressure or or they have diabetes or or a fatty liver or something like that um mechanically they might have a greater stress on their joints or physical limitations as a result of their weight or sleep apnea and then there's the mental piece which can in part be the you know, some of the, let's say, relationships they may have with food as a result, and that's a whole sort of experience in there. But, but they, more importantly, it's the, maybe the world has just been a bunch of jerks to them and the world has not been accommodating. And so I do think there's an intersexuality, if you will, if that, is that a word like that means <laughs> intersection, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, my father, the English teacher, is rolling over. <laughs> um, but I do think there's an intersection between, you know, the physiological effect of that disease 
and the sort of box that we have placed people in. And I say to patients all the time, you know, we've put you in a box. Sometimes we need to change or we need to treat you. And sometimes we need to treat the box. Sure. Um, And it's that same idea of sometimes we need to change people's bodies, if you will. I hate that term, but sometimes we need to change their minds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I see it as like, we we need to do all of the above because it, as we've talked about, it's so complex. So we know that obesity is not a behavior, right? As much as the commercial weight loss industry wants to make it a behavior. But we also know that there are behaviors and I have my, my clinic, we have a special interest in eating disorders like binge eating disorder, as well as disordered eating. So how do you tie that together? Like, how do you reconcile um, the behavioral aspect that can contribute to taking in excess and then separating that from obesity, the disease? I treat them separately. I, yeah. I mean, I understand that not all patients with certain eating disorders have hormonal dysregulation adiposity and not all patients with hormonal dysregulation adiposity or not all patients with a starving brain, uh, you know, um, actually have an eating disorder and not all patients with an eating disorder have a starving brain. Does that make sense? I understand that there's going to be intersection. I like that word intersexual. I I hope it's a word (laughs) because I really... I'm enjoying it. It might just be intersection, but we can go with intersexuality as well. It's all good. Intersectionality. Isn't it intersectionality? Anyways, okay, okay, intersection. Okay. Wow. I was, try- I was doing so well, and then I... <laughs> um, I'll acknowledge my humanity there, but I will move away from that. But we can acknowledge there's this sort of shared space in many cases. And I, I almost think of it like a Venn diagram. Like sometimes mm-hmm. they're apart and sometimes they're together. Yeah. And, you know, for example... Binge eating disorder, 2% of the population, but 70% of people with it, you know, don't have um, uh, uh, adiposity and don't carry, quote, extra weight. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's an important acknowledgement. Um, You know, the challenge is, is that, you know, you only get one body and, and certain organs perform double functions, right? So, you know, the brain is it performs a lot of different functions. So yes. Um, and I, I, but I, I think that, you know, what I look at is I go back to sort of the first principles biology of where is the origin of this? And is you and I've sort of, you know, my take that I talk with patients about is, you know, weight gain happens because a brain thinks it's starving and this is evolutionary biology and a starving brain stores fat and hunts for food because that's what we had to be good at 50,000 or 100,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, if your brain thinks it's starving, it stores and it hunts. Well, I I will say sometimes patients have cravings around food and, and because their brain thinks it's starving. So they will have, you know, compulsive food behaviors, not, not, that that caused their adiposity or obesity, but as a result of, because mm-hmm. to use the old term, if obesity is a state where the brain thinks it's starving and a starving brain hunts and stores, that explains perfectly why patients with adiposity have a hell of a time losing weight and why many of them have cravings or 
greater compulsions towards food than others. Now, on that front, I would argue all of us, it's like, I don't know about you, but maybe I'm hanging out in the wrong circles, but I can count on one hand the amount of people in my life who I have ever met that, you know, talk about, quote, I eat to live. I don't live to eat. I'm like, you've right. never tried my cooking. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to say, but like, 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 you know, it's funny. I was watching the Digital Toronto International Film Festival this past weekend, and there was this beautiful documentary on Julia Child and sort of, you know, and a woman over 50, I'm very much identifying with her and her, how she brought sort of food and the love of cooking and, and how back when she started in the sixties, it was all TV dinners and what was fast and what was convenience. And the Betty Crocker cookbook was just like a magazine. And she came out with this two volume, you know, the key to French cuisine. And you have to see the, the food porn in this, in this documentary. <laughs> I mean, they were doing like page chartlets and I was like, Oh my God, this looks amazing. And, and I think as a society, you know, food, it, there's something about it. Like food's the only substance on the planet that's good for you, necessary for life, but is fun. And so I do feel that just like we have over-diagnosed obesity, we've also over-diagnosed sort of food, like foodies or, you know, where, where because if you're, for like we've over-diagnosed food behaviors. And, and I think part of it is that if you're carrying, you know, if you have adiposity and you're a foodie, then automatically you have a problem, right? But I'll give you an example. I live with a man who's 165 pounds at five foot 10 and has weighed that for the last 25 freaking years. And two nights ago, he ate, I, I make the best pizza. I make it from scratch. I make the dough. He ate the whole damn thing. And that's, that's a weekly, like the man eats six bagels for breakfast. It's obnoxious. Yeah. Like, right. half, like, it's just, you know, but no one says, I mean, I say it now and got, honey, if you're listening, I do love you. You're amazing. But, <laughs> but like, that's not, but, but I would argue that sometimes when we talk about quote, distress around that, it's not that the person actually should be distressed, but it's that the world has food shamed them mm. for that. You know, how many times have you seen a patient where they said, oh my God, I screwed up last night. I had an ice cream. Yeah on ice cream corn. So my question is what flavor was it? Let's talk. Like, <laughs> yeah. did you go for the, yeah. you know, so I just, I mean, I know I'm all over the place here, but I, I think that, yes, I think there are some behaviors that indeed, and, and this is the problem with this whole field is that it really is this sort of huge not even a gray area, but remember medicine likes to be black and white. We like to, because we like to, we have been trained to identify patterns and we are a pattern oriented profession. And as you have beautifully said, human beings aren't so binary at all. We are, never mind gray, but we're technicolor. Like we're all over the place. And we're seeing that in so many other spaces. In, in terms of, we're seeing that in terms of gender, we're seeing that in terms of sexuality, we're seeing that in terms of, um, you know, cultural expressions. And so why can't we make that leap and see that in terms of the field that we practice in and in terms, and, and because I think when we do that, we foster greater acceptance. Mm -hmm. and, 
you know, so I, I just, I don't believe that we have to, I, I am not here to fix people because people are not broken, but we have this fix it mentality of you have a bad relationship with food. food you are addicted to, I mean, the food addiction scale, you have food addiction and you need to have it fixed. And um, I think we need to relook at that because I, I would, yes, there are legitimate spaces where, yes, um, and I see this with my patients with true eating disorders, where treatment changes their lives, where they yeah. feel free and they feel um, unlimited and they feel um, at peace. But I, I don't know that it is absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a hammer, everybody's a nail. And yeah. I think we're looking for it a little too much. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, to your point, it's that it's like socially acceptable for someone with one type of body to eat the whole pizza and eat six bagels for breakfast. And then that would be completely unacceptable for someone with a different body. And then on the flip side, you know, there are those people like myself, I've expressed this on my podcast before, but I had binge behaviors, not binge eating disorder, binge behaviors that were so distressing for me and came out at times of stress, uh, like in med school and residency. And, and I haven't had, you know, I, I've just been this body size my whole life. But um, so there are people who self-identify as this is destroying my life. Like I'm so distressed by this, who, who truly need the help. So I think there's the overdiagnosis perhaps uh, that comes from maybe our judgments. And then there's the people who really do and really are seeking for the help and the support and understanding the psychology of the brain and how it drives our eating behaviors and all of that. So it's complex, and I guess right? to your point, what I would almost ask is, why was it distressing you? So that's my, so when I have a patient like that, I, I talk about, is it distressful? Yes. And the next question is why? And sometimes addressing the why mm-hmm. is actually very helpful because it gives you yeah. insight into the issue, yeah. you know, yeah. like, yeah. Um, and I think that's super valuable and it's something that is talked about a lot in the space of eating disorder recovery where- yeah you know, um, um, and and again, it it speaks to this idea that it's this whole sort of big, dark box of the brain and, and what does that look like? But, you know, but I, you know, uh, I mean, uh, it's interesting because as you were saying that, I thought that's exactly the point. If you and I went out to dinner and everyone who eats with me, it's very funny, knows that I overorder. It's, it's my, I've done it my whole life. Well, I, I remember. Think, yeah. I remember the seafood cool. tower when you and yes. I went out for dinner. Yes, like, totally. You're going to have a seafood tower. Three tiers are better than two. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's a <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I overorder. I think it stems from the fact we grew up um, without and we grew up poor and my grandparents were immigrants and um, survived a lot of starvation. And so, you know, food was abundant, like abundance was security and it meant you had arrived and there was like a whole sort of underbelly to that. And I also, on a practical side, I like to try everything. I, I would argue on a menu, I have classic FOMO. Like I am the person who will eat off someone else's plate and some, I, if I know them well enough, I don't ask, but it usually I, Oh, are you going to finish that? Cause I'd like to try it. Or I bully people 
into ordering <laughs> what I would like. I'm like, I'm going to have this and you're going to have that. And can I have a bite of that? Cause I did want the crab cake, but I also wanted the Caesar salad and I didn't want to order both. Because, but if you would, I, right. But, and you know, because I, you know, have a, a, what is it? A BMI of 27 or what, you know, by, by so chart issues, I would be considered quote overweight or what have you. Uh, I am sure that there are eyebrows raised and what have you. Um, and, and as opposed to, you know, if I were, let's say 30 or 40 pounds lighter, I, I would, I think people would think, oh God, isn't she lucky that she's just blessed to have that quote metabolism. Yeah. 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 And, very true. And it's, it's, you know, um, and then I think also there would be this idea of, you know, is that, is that behavior around food dysregulatory? You know, I, I, I cook for my staff and I always bring food to work and all of this. And I think people might think, oh, that that's, there's an issue there. Like what she got going on there. And like, do I have to have an issue? Could I just not be like that? I love to bake and I like to share. And I'm that kid who always gave half my sandwich on the schoolyard and that hasn't changed. And as you and I've said, like, was that not the best damn seafood tower you'd ever have? Like, come on. <laughs> still talk about it. It was right. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, you've been so gracious with your time. So before we wrap up, tell us about um, the no fat shame movement and the revolution that you are kind of pioneering. You called your clinic revolution medical clinic with purpose. So tell us about that. Uh, So I will give props to Lisa Cram, who was my nurse uh, who named the clinic when we were trying to figure out a name for the clinic uh, the joke with my staff was I'm like, I will buy a Gucci wallet for whoever names the clinic. That was the contest <laughs> we had. Um, and I did good on my delivery. It was great. Um, I think Lisa appropriately chose the name revolution because she always, I mean, I always say, come on guys, welcome to the revolution. And this idea of, it's interesting, this was six, seven years ago, you know, before Black Lives Matter really came to fruition. And it was this idea that I felt there needed to be a revolution in medicine around what we've already talked about, around a focus away from sick, well, a focus away from good, bad, from, you know, but a focus on patient-centered care and treating people where they were and honoring the patient as a decision maker and, um, and you know, a, a newer, the, the fact that, that in medicine, people don't care so much anymore about how much you know, they care how much you care. And that we have a population now who has access to knowledge greater than ever before. And so I think we're, as clinicians, in a bit of an existential crisis of what's our role now. And I think our role is to be more the advocate and the facilitator. Like, I think people have the map and they know how to drive the car now. Whereas before I think we were the map and the driver and we knew the directions and everything and people sat in the back and it was, and we just drove them. We were the the actual driver, but I think people either know how to drive the car or they have self-driving cars or what have you. And they know the directions, but now what we are is we are sort of the Google maps who gives them the different routes and which might be the most ideal for them. Number one. 
Um, and also, I think we are sort of the companion in the car who keeps them company and supports them through the ride in case there is a snowstorm and helps them navigate it or in case the roads are icy or what have you. And I think that's more our role. And to me, that was what the revolution should look like. Absolutely. So it was even a greater shift in healthcare. Um, and then to that front, the no fat shame movement came out of the idea that when, you know, when we know better, we do better. And, mm-hmm. and that, yes, um, a third of patients presenting to hospital will have adiposity related diseases. And why is it that we are treating, we are teaching residents about pheochromocytoma and MEN2 and, and not that those diseases don't matter, but like for your listeners, these are things that you might see once in a career. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But that a medical student leaves medical school knowing about you know, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis and post-streptococcal GN. <laughs> like I can still remember that. I went to Mac and we had, we had case-based studies and I can still tell you the name of the, pa- the fake patient that we had who had post-streptococcal GN 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never learned that there is hypothalamic regulation of energy balance within the arcuate nucleus and the third ventricle. Um, and that the, you know, the hypothalamus is a series of different nuclei that communicate with each other and that we have POM C neurons that are fullness neurons and agouti or PY, you know, there are hunger neurons and that these communicate to the rest of the brain and that we have a hedonic drive to food that is centered in our mesolimbic uh, pathway. And these are subcortical and they are, beyond consciousness and they are uh, a function of genetics and physiology and evolutionary biology and medical students aren't getting that and residents aren't getting that and so the message that they then get is you are fat because you eat too much and you don't exercise enough so in order to lose weight you're going to have to do the opposite and that's on you and if we're ever like you and I are in a very fortunate position. Um, and we have a position of privilege, even as women, um, you know, in medicine, um, that's our 70 cents on the dollar, but, you know, um, but absolutely. But, but with that comes the knowledge that, uh, 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 and so it insulates us somewhat from the cultural biases that we know to be there. Um, and I would argue that, if we're ever, we, we are also fortunate because we have an armory of treatments that we didn't have 20 years ago, as we talked about. Well, why aren't they getting facilitated more? Why is it that, first of all, patients don't even have cover? I mean, don't get me started with our $600 million uh, uh, deja vu on Monday. I kept thinking, <laughs> how many patients could I, like how many bariatric clinics could I have opened? Oh gosh. Oh gosh. I can't million. talk about, I can't like, talk about like, that. That would have been like, if Justin would have just given like, really, could we, or like, really that, that just made me sick anyways. Um, but that's. We're printing money, Allie. It's okay. It's okay. He's got us covered. It's well, and you're talking to the socialists. So it's like, (laughs) there's Tommy shining upon us, Um, you know, uh, Tommy Douglas. Um, But, um, but I, I think the biggest barrier, and I've said this in meetings that we've had to, 
to treatment is not it, it is the fact that weight bias exists that that and and if we're ever going to change that sure we need to to educate those of us among us at our station and those of us above us but we really have to focus on those of us who are coming up and so no fat shame aims to create educational platforms for medical students and residents across, you know, across Canada, but also across the world or across North America that focus on the science of energy regulation, the harm of weight bias, because weight bias does kill people for Mm -hmm. a number. We haven't even talked about that, but it not only is it morally uh, um, wrong and morally apprehensible, but it, it actually kills people. Studies show that patients uh, seek medical attention less often, that they are less likely to have, um, you know, treatments explained to them, that they are, they do not, that they are less likely to be offered treatment, etc. Um, and, you know, if we want to even just look at the whole COVID experience, I know we talk about how COVID, you know, 75% of people who died of COVID in the United States had uh, adiposity. Well, is that you know, we talk about, oh, maybe it's because the inflammatory markers and fat tissue and the breathing and the, the could it not be because these were people who were so freaking fat shamed and every time they went to the emergency room with shortness of breath, they were told to lose weight, that maybe they just didn't present as often. Like you and I know this, that healthcare is complicated and involves people and cultures and access and all those things that are limited by bias. And um, and so my, the, the movement at nofatching.com looks at, um, a, and it's an education and it's in its, of course, infancies cause you know, it's a nonprofit and it's me and, you know, and a dream. And, and so I approached medical schools and residency programs across Canada and said, I have an education platform to teach your students. And if you want, we can put together cut and paste, whatever, how many, give me a day, give me a, an hour, give me five hours, give me a curriculum. We can tailor make a curriculum for your students at whatever level you want so that they learn what you're not teaching them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who knows where that goes. Now, uh, Queen's University, I did a five-day session with their second-year medical students, um, and we picked exactly what we were going to look at. We did physiology, we did diagnosis and treatment, we did weight bias, and interestingly, the feedback and the the evaluations, their favorite one was the discussion around weight bias, which yep. was fascinating. Yep. Um, uh, internal, you know, we've done with UBC, internal medicine. I mean, the uptake hasn't been great. Um, and you know this, um, because you're still sadly knocking on an institution's doors that are more towers. They're big doors that are sort of the king is dead, long live the king. Then, hey, come on, you know, because their comment is, well, we don't have the room. We have to have a curriculum that looks a certain way. And unfortunately, when you go to the college and you ask them for you know, that, that's an even more um, uh, long, winding, disheartening road. So my thought was, 
maybe the shortest distance is two points. And maybe I go like any good grassroots movement. I start with each university and see where we can do. So for anyone who's interested, you go to nofatshame.com and there, if you're a patient, uh, there are patients' bills of rights that how to communicate with your doctor so that in your therapeutic relationship with your physician, you can, you know, your rights. Like if the doctor says to you, you know, you just need, you need to lose weight. Here's some, how you talk to them. Here's Mm -hmm. like, here's the conversation you can have. Like it's, it is not just okay, but it is encouraged that you say, you know what? I I didn't come here to talk about my weight. I really, that's great. I'm glad that you you brought that up, but I came here to talk about my birth control pills. And that's what I'd really like to have renewed. And I'm not comfortable you discussing my weight with me unless you ask my permission. In which case right now, my permission is no. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we want to encourage patients to be, to have that kind of advocacy. Um, And if you're a clinician and you want to learn how to make your office a bit more weight friendly, there's a couple things you can do. And if you're in training and you want to bring these educational platforms to your schools, um, you know, this is sort of how we started it as this kind of outreach of these three tiers um, as a grassroots movement in the hope that, you know, look, I hope I'm still practicing in 20 years, but I hope you and I are not having this kind of conversation. Yeah. I still hope we're eating seafood towers though. I, <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Despite what's happening. I mean, sorry to all the vegetarians out there, but I live on the coast. <laughs> From one, so you know. it's okay. It's allowed in Vancouver. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I thank you, Ali. Like I, I totally commend you and, and admire you for the advocacy and the passion and, and the push. I know I've reached out to, you know, my alma mater and got crickets in return and saying like, Hey, I, I would love to teach your medical students in your residence. So I think it's essential and um, so happy that you're doing that. So that's nofatshame.com. Amazing. Is there anything else you want to say just like in terms of how do we do better for people who are listening? You know, I, I think we, I think it's, it's this idea. And one of the principles of no fat shame is, is what we call eyes, mouth, minds, heart. So it's that thing. So, you know, um, so, you know, in terms of your mind, so I think watch, like acknowledge that weight bias exists in all of us. I mean, the studies show 65% mm-hmm. of people who practice obesity medicine have weight bias. So I think just that humility of I am biased, you are biased. Like we come by it honestly. And it's it's let's stop with the judgment of that's okay or that's not okay. It's there. Acknowledge it exists because when you know it's there implicitly, it's less likely to become explicit when you're tired or rushed or angry or what have you. But just understand that your thoughts are shaped by generations of, mm-hmm. of wrongdoings. And, and it's not that it, like, I'm not saying it's okay, but I think that we need to have a bit more grace around its presence and not just say, well, you're this and we're done. Uh, you know, we live in such a weird canceling experience that you make one mistake and we're over. And 
I don't think that allows for an opportunity for growth or healing or acceptance or what have you. So I think acknowledging it in ourselves and in others and acknowledging, of course, then that allows us the grace that people make mistakes. I think from an eyes perspective, and I'm seeing this more so, we need to change the physical sort of representation of people of all sizes and our quotes, that box of standard of beauty. And I, you know, you know this, I, I do love fashion and I was delighted to see on catwalks nowadays, there's, you know, everything. And mm-hmm. that, um, you know, um, and that beauty is, is truly in the eye of the beholder and that, um, you know, we need to change this idea. I call them the headless people in beige. Like yeah. that cultural narrative of headless beige um, people walking around where there's a handful of like usually a burger or something and it's going into a dark, like that's ridiculous. Like it's insulting. It's inappropriate. It's it's wrong. And we need to celebrate um that beauty equals diversity and diversity isn't just confined to certain areas. It's confined to body sizes as well. Absolutely. Um, And then mouth is our language. And we've talked about this at length. I mean, shit, like like we should start a hashtag, change the name, like adiposity. Like, I mean, we just need to, if anything, we need to understand where our words come from um, and then what does that, what messaging do those words send, right? And, 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 you know, explanations around that are valuable and having discussions around that. But the problem is our context nowadays is this very quick, you know, 256 characters or less um, that we lack sort of even more so than ever we lack we don't share spaces with people physically anymore. So we lack a context, you know, so it's okay to say things in an internet hole because you've never met the person and you can be the, you know, the bully that you want to because you're, you're nameless, faceless, and there's no accountability. And, you know, you can say something on the internet that is cruel and mean that you would never say to someone's face because, you know, there's that, but but manners are important. I, I love manners. I think that they are, you know, I think they're, they're, they provide us with graciousness and, you know, they allow us to be ourselves, but a little better behaved. Um, and then heart is, you know, so we have mind, mouth, eyes, and heart is empathy. I mean, yeah, I would argue when it came to people with adiposity, I didn't almost, I joke that I almost didn't have a choice to be empathetic because, you know, and I, I remember one of my colleagues saying, well, the reason you're practicing this medicine is because you're a patient. And I was like, okay, like, so, so what's your point? Like, does that make me less of a doctor? Because I like, there was this weird implication that, well, no shit, like you're here because you're one of them. And, and, and that was shared by, you know, a couple of, of colleagues of mine. And I was like, that, that almost diminished it. And nowadays I think, wow, what a compliment. Like I was empathetic by default. Um, and 
And the same person I remember came back and talked to me and said, well, you practice boutique medicine. And again, that was supposed to be an insult. And I was like, thank you. Like, that's amazing. I'm Mm -hmm. delighted to hear that I do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this idea of everybody has a story um, as I've talked way too long and every story has value. Yes. And when you sit with people and you listen to their stories, um, your humanity connects to their humanity. And now more than ever, we're looking for those connections. And it's very difficult to be cruel and judgmental and to automatically have that binary cut off when you understand that there's this, you know, beautiful, multifaceted, multi-layered individual in front of you um, who, you know, who's just open arms, you know, asking for the same rights as every other person, you know, on this planet. And, and as a clinician, if you're, if you can't see that, then get the hell out of medicine (laughs) because this Mm -hmm. profession is not for you. Yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah, that idea. And I think as, as an individual, if you're not in clinical practice, just understand that, that it doesn't, my, my dad used to say this all the time. It costs nothing to be kind. Yeah. Like yeah. it really doesn't like, just don't be a jerk. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you can't be kind, then just don't be a jerk. Like just can't be part of the solution. Then please don't be part of the problem. That's all. And keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. And it's just full circle, right? I talked at the beginning about it's, it's about loving people and caring for people and having that empathy and holding the highest honor and awe for others um, and just seeing them. So thank you, Ali. I've loved thank this you. conversation. I know way too long. No, it's great. It's okay. It's all good. It's all good. I loved it. So thank you so much. This was, this was amazing. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed listening to the High on Life podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and review it on Apple Podcasts.